Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. As clinicians, we spend a decade or more as trainees learning to take care of patients. When we finally start our careers, we want to build research programs, but then we find that our years of clinical training did not adequately prepare us to lead a research program. Through no fault of our own, we struggle to find mentors, and when we can't, we quit. However, clinicians hold the keys to the greatest research breakthroughs. For this reason, the Clinician Researcher podcast exists to give academic clinicians the tools to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. Now, introducing your host, Teosi Onwemina. Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast. I'm your host, Teosi Onwemina, and it is such a pleasure to be here today. I'm super, super excited about today's episode because we have two amazing, not one, but two amazing librarians who are here to talk to us about how they support clinician researchers. I am so excited to talk with them. And I, without much further ado, because I want them to introduce themselves, I want to go ahead and introduce to you Layla and Sarah. Welcome, both of you. Hello. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, everybody. My name is Layla Ledbetter. I am one of the research and education librarians at the Medical Center Library and Archives. We'll talk a tiny, tiny bit about that. I'm here at the Duke Medical Center. I am, my personal role is I am a liaison, so sort of like the diplomat between the library and the Duke School of Nursing, but all of us librarians support across the population. So if you write in and ask a question as a clinician researcher, you may get me answering your question, or you may get Sarah, you may get one of our other lovely librarians. Um, so I'll pass it off to Sarah. Right. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Toyosi, for for having us. This is um, a real fun uh, privilege for for us. Uh, so I'm Sarah Cantrell, and I'm the Associate Director for Research and Education at the Medical Center Library and Archives. So in this role, I'm really responsible for developing, implementing, and evaluating the library's research and education programs and our services surrounding that. I'm also the liaison to the graduate medical education programs, so I specifically support all of the interns, the residents, and trainees and fellows. So in in terms of my role in supporting clinician and clinical researchers, I'd say I provide significant support in the area of evidence-based practice, evidence synthesis, such as systematic reviews, as well as in research impact and, and publication tracking. I also teach a lot of skills to clinician researchers, such as comprehensive searching techniques. And I would also just want to add that our library as a whole provides services and the collections that are really necessary to further educational research, clinical, and administrative activities throughout really your careers and in the biomedical field. Wow. Thank you both for, for introducing yourself. So it's funny, I started out saying you're both librarians, which is really simplistic. And I appreciate how you really fleshed it out to say, hey, Yes, we're librarians, but look at how much we do, which is so awesome. And um, so I want to thank you for introducing yourselves so extensively. And I want to thank you for the work you do. 
Um, and I'm hoping that today is the day that the audience gets to figure out how much value librarians it can bring to their they're, they're actually, to be honest, it sounds like you can help in so many ways, not just in clinical research. So I want to explore some of that today. Okay. So I think I will start by asking Sarah, what is the highest value you give to clinician researchers who work with you? Sure, sure. So I think first, it's really hard to distill this to one single gift because the library, I think, is a gift in and of itself. And the library has so many rich gifts in terms of collections and our research-focused services. But ultimately, I am going to say it is our people. Um, all library staff have deep expertise and knowledge in their content areas, and we all share a really strong service mentality. Librarians in particular within the research and education department, who are really kind of our patron forward-facing public services team, we really serve as research connectors and catalysts. I'd also add that our librarians are all highly trained, experienced professionals. We all have advanced degrees. We have, you know, in terms of things that are going to be really useful to the clinician researcher and, and a gift, I think it's truly our strong command of advanced literature searching across dozens of biomedical databases. In addition, I know that people often will think of librarians and searching, but we do more than that. We have a new data management program, and within this, we're really providing um, support and guidance and training around the new NIH uh, data management and sharing policy requirements that is really a mandate from the NIH that will affect anybody with NIH funding. And we, that service there is helpful if this is your first time having to put together something like a data management plan. So that's the sort of guidance that we can, you know, help you with. Like, what does a good data management plan look like? What repository should I be considering for my data? And along those lines, again, of NIH funding, we're also providing support with the NIH public access policy and compliance around that mandate as well. Additionally, we're really offering researchers the tools that are needed to take control of their scholarly profiles, their publication history. We want you to be able to evaluate your personal research impact. If you're working with collaborators to evaluate the research impact of that team or how people are collaborating together or who at Duke is working on a certain topic. Um, and we also offer a lot of scholarly communication expertise. And I know that that phrase might be like odd or new scholarly communication, but it's really that whole business and process of manuscript writing and getting your work published. And there's so many different interesting things surrounding that, like open access. So we're able to provide a lot of support in that open access realm, like, should I be publishing, open access, like I don't understand this journal has a traditional model and this open access model, is this open access journal potentially predatory, quote unquote, so we can provide a lot of help there. And I know I'm taking a little bit of time here, but I 
I do think that when people think of libraries, they think of collections, right? Deep, rich biomedical collections, such as those journals that are so important to you and your research and the biomedical databases that are connecting you to different articles and resources. You know, we have these things, but we also have a medical center archives. And that archives collects the important histories of Duke Health. That includes faculty, staff, students, organizations. We have, you know, some papers of our Nobel laureates. We have, you know, we're processing right now this collection that is really the history of the rice diet. So there's lots of gems and things to uncover and discover there as well. And librarians and archivists who can help you with that. But Ultimately, our gift is truly our people, the people who are enabling the access to these collections, who are making sure that things are running well for you, who educate you in how to best use these tools to be knowledgeable consumers of information, and really our strong expertise in evidence synthesis, research impact, and data management. Whoa, thank you, Sarah. We do so much stuff. And I was like, I'm ticking in my head all the things that we're probably forgetting, right? That we're like the central point of information processing. It is super awesome. You know, it's funny as you're going through that list, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm not even getting the most out of you. <laughs> but but this is really awesome because what I'm hearing, you know, so there's the sense of at least I grew up with the sense of the library is the place you go when you need something and you go get a journal article or you go get a book. But what I'm hearing really is that you are partners in this process and partners in research, partners in publication, partners also in the clinical space. You're really partners with deep expertise in access to information, how to get it, how to present it, and and yes. really how to how to share it as well is what I'm yes from. yes exactly <laughs> so good at this Toyosi. I was trying yeah. to think of a way to squish this in. One of the things that we can help with is scientific posters. We'll sometimes get help people coming by and saying, "Would you have a look at our poster? Would you help me lay one out? Like not done one before. I'm getting ready for a professional conference." That's like one of the little things that a few of our librarians have expertise in. So, yeah, there's so many little things we can help with. Ooh, Layla, I'm gonna want you to speak a little bit more about this because <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is good. This is good. Now, now I know that what you are you you're not looking for is someone who's like, oh, my poster is due tomorrow. Dear librarian, I need your help. So, mm-hmm. what does engaging your help well look like when it comes to, for example, poster presentations? Okay, so that's actually a really good lead-in um, when you're asking us for help of any kind. So, I'm gonna actually since you've sort of started with that. So a timeline and deadlines are always super, super important because we're sort of, I like to tell some of my students and stuff that we're a little bit like a doctor's office. Like there's likelihood of getting in right away may not be great. So there's always a good idea to sort of plan ahead, usually two or three days because we have so many people asking us for so many things. But if you submit a request, what we usually ask for is some sort of context, like what, you know, any kind of detail you can provide. So if this is for a literature search, what what do you need and why? Is this for a proposal? Is this for an article? Are you doing a systematic review? Is this for a class, a class assignment, something like that? 
So we ask for that. In order to be efficient, we'll sometimes ask people like, what have you done already? What databases have you looked in? What have you searched with? Just so we're not sort of doubling back and, you know, annoying you by doing something you've already done before. Like any place you feel like you got stuck, that kind of thing is super, super helpful. And what we usually ask for is like, how much help do you want? So if we're helping with a poster, be like, when is this due? How much stuff have you put in? You know, where, what do you need help with? Do you need help with layout? Do you need more information to go in the poster? But if you're looking for a literature search, we'll say, so librarians, I'm, you probably all know this already, but we have a tendency to give you all of the things. So if you don't want all of the things and information overload, you should just let us know like, hey, I was at a cocktail party and I have trying to prove a point for a question somebody asked. So I just need like an article or two, or I'm providing a little bit of background for this paper, or so I just need, I don't know, 10 articles, or I need something for a class or just whatever. I'm exploring a research topic. Can you help me look to see if anything is out there? So, or I'm doing an evidence synthesis and that means I want everything. And like, and then we'll ask you like, when do you need that by that kind of thing? So that's usually what I would say is if you're asking us but more detail, the better. And that includes like asking us for classes. So if you're interested in individual instruction on like reference management or open access or having us come in and talk to your lab, for example, about something like open access or research impact or citation management, just as much detail as you can provide will help us sort of be able to get back to you faster. And to piggyback on what Layla was saying about and what I think Toyosi, you were getting at with like posters do the next day. So, you know, of course we understand that people are busy and that, you know, some things I, I'm known to procrastinate my, myself. It, it, it does happen. But in those cases, I, I would just, to, to raise awareness, I mean, we are engaged, happy to help you service, but we also are a high volume service. So last year, um, I was just checking, we answered close to 10,000 reference questions. So just be mindful that we are like, We've got our hands in many different pots and um, are communicating with lots of different researchers and students and teams across Duke Health. So, you know, as Layla said, a few days, a week, you know, that's usually a realistic time frame for some smaller questions. Systematic reviews and evidence synthesis work, that's kind of a different story just because it is a really different type of project. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. So it's funny. What, what I'm hearing is that while people like me are just waking up to how valuable you are, other people are using you all the time. So you're busy. And if people want to get the most out of you, they do need to consider that you are consummate professionals with full-time jobs, happy to help, but really needing, needing lead-in time to be able to give your best effort. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm wondering if that answers that question about how re researchers can come prepared to get the most value yeah. or if there's something more you want to add. I don't think so. I think Layla really, you know, hit it on the head, just, you know, a, a communication of that need, the what what you've tried or like what your vision is, because not everything is a, a literature search, you know. So if it is something like I am looking to figure out my re research impact or I need help with X, Y, or Z, 
timeframes, just extent of that need is really all we need to, to get started. Sure. That sounds really good. Can I double down on something you, you said? You talk about figuring out your research impact. Why is that important? And how do you help people do that? Sure, that is like a really, really great question. So here, what I'm kind of lopping into that category is particularly for people who are on the 10-year uh, path. So when you're putting together your portfolio and you're kind of thinking about all of your publications, your presentations, your posters, and you know, trying to get a sense for yourself of the impact you've had in your specific field. And I really do want to emphasize the your specific field because it is not fair to compare a researcher in a niche pediatric specialty with a researcher in adult cardiology. It's just two different researchers. So kind of really thinking about the ethical use and responsible use of publication metrics. So thinking about how many times your articles have been cited, where have they been cited? What are the journals that you're publishing in? Are those the, the you know, top journals within your kind of niche specialty area? Because it's not always going to be Nature and Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine. So we're really trying to help people understand the full scholarly picture and to understand what these metrics mean, like journal impact factor, like each index for an author, and how those things might be used in an evaluative capacity. And, you know, to give you all the information you need to kind of ensure that you are being represented as fully, fully, and, you know, clearly as as possible. We also look at, so that's really at the individual level. A lot of times departments will will contact us and say, you know, we're kind of just doing an internal analysis and just want to really see where people in our department are publishing, who's getting cited, like what papers are getting cited the most, because we want to highlight this in our department newsletter. And then other people might contact us because they want to show, for example, they're putting together a grant and they want to show that this is the perfect team of people to be working together. They've either, you know, collaborated before or this is an opportunity for collaboration. Um, so that's an the international team or yeah. inter-institutional team. Yeah. So I know, like, I guess, thank you for pointing out that research impact is sort of like this buzzword that maybe only makes sense to a small number of librarians, but it really has to deal with that scholarly output, things like journal articles and presentations, and sort of thinking about those metrics that surround them for better or worse, because people will use them, of helping you understand that full sphere of things, I guess. That is really awesome. So now adding to your list of amazing things that you do, do you get people promoted? I mean, <laughs> we might be able to help a little bit. Yeah. No, that's really awesome. Because I mean, if, if you think about, I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the intellectual development statement when you're writing your packet for promotion. And that's one of the things you do need to explain. What's your impact? And for many of us in specialty fields, we're not going to be publishing in these major high impact journals. And how do we explain that? Because that's it's an opportunity to explain it. And it sounds like you help with that. 
Yes. Exactly. Exactly. We have a individual who kind of leads a service within our research and education department, who's really what are like our lead for research impact bibliometrics, which is a type of uh, a scientific approach to analyzing citations and publication tracking. So, and we have kind of a core around that 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 service. So there is that support here within the library. That is really awesome. Thank you. Sure. Now, I'm, I, my next question is, what's the one thing about your role that every clinician researcher should know? And I want to tack on to that. You guys are at Duke, and Duke is a great place. Is this the norm for librarians everywhere? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. So uh, remind me of the second piece after I answer the first piece. So usually what I would like everyone to know is, well, that we're not like the traditional like bun and, you know, librarian that most people right think of when they think of librarian. In fact, some universities and places actually, instead of calling them librarians, which come with a very specific sort of stereotypical, they'll call them informationists, for example. But we still, we love the name librarian. We're going to stick with it. But because we're a service department, you know, we're a service unit and we work with words and we work with computers, we sometimes get a sort of unintentionally mistaken for like administrative assistance or like homework help. Um, but we're really information experts, right? We help you do research and we contribute expertise in any of your sort of research projects from like, how do I write this paper? How do I get it published? How do I collect data? Where do I store the data? So kind of any of that piece. So we often partner with teams on things like systematic reviews, evidence synthesis of those kinds, or bibliometric research projects. And what we do for those is we essentially collect your data. So if you're trying to find all the literature on a topic, Toyosa, you know this because you've worked with me, we'll, we'll gather all that data for you. And, and then you get to start off. If you're doing a, a bibliometric research impact project, we gather all that data for you, give it to you to work with and give you advice on how to work with that. The so, data gathering is not by magic, no. I will say, right, Layla? It's not a swish and flick. That is where the real deep expertise and the wrangling of, you know, the controlled vocabulary in, in these databases, the knowledge of the syntax within these systems, you know, the expertise in understanding the scholarly communication and citation sort of landscape but yes data gatherers yes like a balancing <laughs> like so if you ask me a question and I'm like oh gosh there's a lot of information out there and you know we try to sort of balance that we, we usually call sensitivity and specificity like getting you your answer to the question but not too much and not too little right all of that stuff because we do all of this we frequently at least for evidence syntheses we frequently ask for authorship and so a lot of times people are surprised when we when we ask for that or because but we're like we've contributed a lot intellectually to this project but not for everything obviously if you write to ask me for an answer to a cocktail question cocktail party question I'm not asking for authorship so <laughs> but for big data projects I probably would 
And yeah, uh, the yeah, institution yeah. question. Yes, thank you. I was like, oh, wait, she asked me a second part. So I would say, uh, so we just got back from our Medical Library Association conference, which is yeah, like a huge conference with all of us spread out across, you know, the country and the world. And it varies a lot from institution to institution, but most of us do offer all of these services. They, you know, it all depends on budget and staffing, but in some way, shape or form, it, depending on what institution institution you're at, your librarian will at the very least be able to point you in the right direction for help with any of those things. This is all pretty typical. Yeah, agreed. And just one thing that I would add in terms of one thing about our role that every clinician researcher should know is that we're also educators. So whether that's teaching clinicians, the researchers, trainees, students, we're teaching you and the team skills, including how to use the citation management software like EndNote or Zotero, uh, thinking about data, best practices and management, using tools and software to help create your NIH biosketches, how to craft searches in PubMed and so on. But as Layla said, we don't serve in that administrative assistant capacity. So we don't manage your EndNote libraries for you, but we teach you how to do that. So we really want to teach you so that you can do your work effectively. And we really focus on that whole lifelong learning. We want you to be successful. We're here to help. Absolutely. And there are times like with systematic re reviews, really our involvement is really required. But for a lot of other things, we really do also see ourselves in with an educator mission as well. We really want you, because you don't want to have to wait for me to like check my email and then like look at the answer and then get back to you if you can do it yourself, right? And so a lot of times we'll actually ask that when we, do you want to know how to do this yourself? You know, do you want me to do it for you? Or do you want, and almost everybody wants to know how to do it themselves. So they don't have to rely on it, right? They want to be, we all love to learn and we all want to be experts at what we do. And so most people want to learn. Sure. So I hear in that also you empower people to to do their jobs better as well efficiently hopefully efficiently. you know we have this cool tool <laughs> we get very excited about it yes empowered is, awesome. is the right word yeah yes i i i can't i can't name how many tools i've learned just emailing and it seems like layla you're the one who's always checking the email and or maybe I, you just love me. We must have a connection. It is fake. That too. That too. I recently shared a, a trick you taught me in Scopus about how to find what journals publish articles that are similar to one that you're working on, which was so neat. I shared that at a conference Yay. a couple of weeks ago and people were like, I've never heard that. I'm like, you've got to talk to your librarians. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad. So if you want to know how to do that, just write to the library and one of us will show you. But it's a really super easy, simple trick. You've got lots of tricks, which is why my next question is, tell us about a life hack that you can share with researchers. Um, I can start this one and I'll let Layla like share one too, because I think we have so many life hacks. As you've alluded to, Toyosi, we, we have so many different things that we can share that are really with, with that aim of making your life easier, especially in terms of areas related to searching, to research impact analysis, data management planning, and so much more. And finding that right home for your manuscript, like what journals are publishing on this topic. 
Um, one life hack that I would like to share, particularly for the earlier career clinician researchers, is making sure that you're starting to get that handle over your kind of what I would call scholarly profile. You can think about it like a CV, right? But in this case, I'm talking about making sure that you set up an ORCID profile. And I'm going to explain what ORCID is. It's O-R-C-I-D. And then I'm going to want you to link your ORCID profile to scholars at Duke. And if you know that you're going to need to be putting together NIH biosketches to science CV. So ORCID is a nonprofit organization that provides you with a 16-digit unique researcher profile number. So it's like a social security number that's personalized to you. And it's an online system that essentially allows you to build a researcher CV where you're linking out or providing your work history, your publications, your awards, your grants, all in kind of one public-facing profile. And also the really nice thing about that unique 16-digit ID is that also helps disambiguate you from all of the other researchers who may have a similar name to you or the same name as, as you. So by setting up your ORCID, which you may have done if you've ever had to submit an article for a publication and the, you know, the Scholars One profile system asks you what your ORCID is. You may have quickly created one and you have the number, but have you actually populated your profile? Have you put the publications in there? Because I like to, you know, there's the work, work harder or work smarter, not harder. Sorry, work smarter, not harder. And ORCID allows you to do that. So you're just going to manage your publications and claim them in one spot in ORCID. Yeah, ORCID will like go and pull it, yeah, things for you. It will nice. automatically. It's not like you're sitting there typing it all in. No, 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 no. You're going to search and link. And then um, ORCID talks to other systems, such as our faculty profile system, Scholars at Duke. So you just need to go in your settings and link your ORCID. So you don't have to sit there and claim all your publications in your Scholars at Duke profile. You just link your ORCID. Similarly, that works with Science CV. You don't have to sit there and generate a new bibliography each time. You can link your ORCID and pull publications into your biosketch that way. Plus, it's institution agnostic. So we don't want you to leave Duke, but if you left Duke, it is not tied to the Duke system. And there's a good chance that wherever you go, you're going to be able to use it again. So start building that ORCID profile now. And if you have questions about it, that is the perfect thing to have a consultation with us about. I am. Um, I have the ORCID ID in my signature line in my email. So that, you know, just to promote myself. So it'll be like, here's all my stuff and here's my ORCID if you'd like to go see my publications, right? So I think it's a really great sort of like marketing self-promotion thing as well. I like it. And it's a low-key self-promotion thing. Yeah. Yeah. Come see all the cool stuff I do. <laughs> so do you have a, a life hack to add? Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Well, we've talked a little bit about citation management, and I'm still surprised by meeting scholars and researchers who are not using some sort of reference manager or citation software. Some of times it's because they tried once like way back in the day and it was really overwhelming and they didn't like it. So they just bailed. But they're the tools are getting better and easier. If one doesn't work for you, another might. And we're 
very familiar with most of them. So you could come to us and say, I tried EndNote and I found EndNote to make my head implode. And so can you suggest something else and we'll suggest something else? Or, you know, I'm using Zotero, but it maybe doesn't have all the things I need it to do. And could you show me how to use EndNote? And it's easy to swap back and forth. But what these do, for those of you who have not heard of one, they help you gather all your researches you're trolling around databases and in the internet and somebody suggests something on Twitter and all that kind of stuff you can gather it all in one place and organize it like your own personal like library of all the citations that you care about and not just like in PubMed that has like 38 million citations or something like that. It'll be just the stuff that you would care about in your research. You can attach the PDF and then you can take that tool and write with it. So most people are probably using or have touched one at one point or another, but that's kind of a big one we get asked about a lot. Sarah, did you want to maybe talk about like search alerts? That's how I was really helpful. Yeah, I guess the, yeah, there's probably just two ones, two things I can quickly touch on. Um, other hacks really include setting up PubMed search alerts so that you receive email notifications when new articles get published on topics of interest to you. We know that it's really hard to keep up with research in your field. And what we've found is, I mean, the librarian can help you craft a targeted search and we'll show you how to see that search in PubMed, set up a customized search alert that would just notify you, you know, weekly, monthly, anytime uh, new citations appear in PubMed that meet those search parameters. Um, and that can also be helpful for journal article table of contents too, where we can just set up um, a search for specific journals in PubMed. And again, you'd be alerted uh, through email anytime there's a new issue out. Any and then of the databases, yeah. oh, sorry, any oh, of the no. databases will actually do this. So if you prefer, um, we're PubMed is the one we're all familiar with, but we have a lot of really super cool databases here. Um, my personal favorite is Embase, and you can do a search in there and it will um, send you search alerts as well. And they have a different journal set. I mean, there's an overlap, but there's also a bunch of unique journals in that database. And so you could set up a couple in the different ones. You're always getting information from around the world. And then the last it. thing, oh, I'm yeah. so sorry. The very last thing um, is that you should remember that we subsidize interlibrary loan fees. That's another jargon-laden term, but interlibrary loan is just the process that a library uses to obtain articles and books that we don't personally have in our collection, um, but we can get it to you through a sh sharing opportunity with other libraries. So some places charge for this service. We do not. We, our library absorbs those costs. So if there is an article or book that you need and it is not in our collections, we don't uh, pay for it. Don't, don't pay, pay for it. Come don't pay the 40 to $60. <laughs> no. yeah, we can request it from another institution at no charge to you. And the turnaround time can be as short as one business day. Sometimes plan ahead, plan ahead, but yeah. Plan ahead. <laughs> and that's awesome. I'm also hearing that you save people time. So you have these hacks that are really productivity hacks to help people not keep having to do things over and over again. It's like, do do the ORCID and, and then you're done. Do, yeah. do the alerts and then you're done. That's all. Exactly. Awesome. That's awesome. All right. Well, I'm excited about this next question. What is one new item that all clinician researchers should know right now? I am so excited to share this news. So 
our libraries recently entered an institutional agreement with the journal publisher PLOS to cover article processing charges for Duke published research. So, so basically, <laughs> this agreement stipulates that any Duke corresponding author, so you do, you do have to be the corresponding author, um, but if your work is accepted into any of the PLOS journals, you will not have to pay the associated open access fee. PLOS is a highly regarded uh, journal publisher. These are really high researching impact. Yep. They are top tier. And those open access fees are typically between like three to $5,000 per article. So through this agreement, if your work after peer review is accepted and you're the Duke corresponding author, you will not have to pay the article processing charges. And I, I will also add that according to some of the internal publication analyses that our library has done of Duke authored publications, plus journals actually are kind of the top journals that Duke is publishing in. Like by raw numbers, Duke authors are publishing in PLOS journals the most. So we really hope that you will all take advantage of this incredible agreement that we've entered into. Saving so much money. Wow. Wow. That is incredible. So now adding to your role. Saving and investing <laughs> no, exactly. because it's an investment, right? You get right. your article into a, a highly ranked journal and that does help you in terms of your what's ability. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. That's so awesome. Wow. All right. Now I have to go look at my uh, list of upcoming manuscripts or submission and see if there's a fit. What, yes. are the, what are the journals in the PLOS family, if you if you don't mind sharing? Oh, gosh. Yes. Let me just... Sarah's like looking that up while I stall. <laughs> so, <laughs> they have quite a few. And every time um, we do. talk about it, they've added another like specialty journal. Yes. I will say... Ooh, which journal? Okay. These include PLOS One. PLOS Medicine, PLOS Water, PLOS Sustainability and Transformation, PLOS Pathogens, PLOS Neglected Tropical Diseases, PLOS Global Public Health, PLOS Genetics, PLOS Digital Health, PLOS Biology, PLOS Climate, and PLOS Computational Biology. Okay, that's quite a broad range. PLOS Medicine definitely seems like a potential fit. Mm -hmm. Lot of people publishing and publishing in plus one. Okay, because that was the original. Yeah. Got it. Got it. That's awesome. Now I want to I want to say for my viewers who are not from Duke, is this something that other institutions are thinking about? Can Can others look forward to these kinds of agreements? Yes, there. I I think so. It is you know certainly costly, but for I would say large research one universities. This is definitely, I think, where some of the scholarly services are, are are going to, where we are trying to explore these, what they're called as transformative agreements. What we want to avoid, at least like here at Duke, and I think a lot of other libraries as well, is paying for research twice. Mm -hmm. So, and what I mean by that is a lot of journals now have hybrid open access models where 
you might be, your article might be accepted and you can either publish in the traditional way or they might have an open access option for you where you would have to pay and then but your your article is made visible what we want to avoid is uh, we used to have something called the cope fund um, where all the libraries would contribute to this and duke researchers could submit requests to have their article processing charges covered and we always had to say no to those requests for those hybrid journals because it's like we are already paying thousands and thousands of dollars per year to have a subscription to that journal and now having to then pay on top of that so that some a researcher can make it open access in that journal it just there is like there's like this disconnect but there's a lot going on in publishing and scholarly communications right now um I would say like for us, it's it's exciting. There's like a lot of new and interesting things happening. And we really are trying to support the research community as much as we can. And I think entering in some of these transformative agreements with journal publishers where it just makes sense, like something like PLOS, where we know Duke authors have traditionally published quite a bit in, we, we're going to try to keep exploring those. We also have agreements with all Cambridge University press journals and then two BMJ journals, BMJ Open Quality and BMJ Case Reports. So with all of those journals, if your work gets accepted, you do not have to pay the processing charges. Unbelievable and awesome. What a plug for open science. Awesome news and just, oh, wow, now I have to go and, and figure out which which of the plus journals I can publish in. Thank you for sharing that news. It is really a cutting these transformative agreements are really sort of cutting edge. They're just starting to get like sort of negotiated. So you guys are kind of like in on the you know, hearing about it now, and you'll hear more and more as the years go on, and 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 universities systems start picking this up. And if if you're at a smaller institution, smaller institutions do it as well. It just sort of again depends on your institution and their library and and your research output and that kind of thing. Yeah, but but I think large, open, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say. I mean, I guess one thing I could say about, about open science is, you know, open access in publishing is just one one piece of of that um data you know sharing data management plans and your data is another part of that of increasing visibility of really stressing reproducibility of research um and breaking down the some of the systems that have led to inequities in accessing mm -hmm information and that's my big passion with open access is it breaks down that barrier and makes the research visible and accessible to all so those who aren't as fortunate or privileged to be at an institution like duke you know to be able to access this information to build on it in their own settings without that those additional burdens in place i think is so incredibly important we encourage it. Go open if you if you can possibly do it. Go open. Spread your spread your research. We want people to see it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, thank you. That was so awesome, and actually a great segue into the next question, which is like, so you brought up a lot of things, which I I myself am like, oh, I didn't know that, I didn't know that, and I need to find out about that. <laughs> 
So for everyone who's listening, how what, how do they engage their librarians? Like, I know we've talked about what's the best way to come prepared, but just for everyone who's listening, it's like, I, I've never even ever talked to my librarian. What's the first step? Okay, so if you are trying to reach us, if you were at Duke and you were trying to reach a Duke librarian, emailing us is the best way to do it. We have a super easy email address. It is medical-librarian, so medical-librarian at duke.edu. But if you are trying to, kind of the best way to get most librarians and libraries is actually through their websites. So many of our services come through our websites, databases, instructional guides, our resources, wayfinders to point you in all different directions. It's all through our websites. If you wanted to come to the Duke Medical Center Library website, um, we are actually separate from main campus. So if you Google Duke Library, you're actually going to get main campus library, which is a great library. Don't get me wrong. But if you want the medical center library, you can Google Duke Medical Library and it will bring you to our website. Um, that will be way easier than me trying to spell out our URL. So what I've decided to default to in most library websites, there will be email addresses. And that's probably most librarians preferred way of getting a request because then you can provide all that information we talked about, like when and where and what and who and contacts and all that good stuff. But most libraries also have a chat feature. So we have a little chat bot box that you can uh, Monday through Friday, nine to five, you can send us a quick question like, hey, I'm trying to get this article. You know, can you tell me whether or not Duke has it? And we'll say, yes, we do. Or no, we don't. You're going to have to send it through interlibrary loan. Um, hey, I'm doing a really quick search. Can you suggest some terms for me? That kind of thing. So you wanted, or we, or you can say, I'd really like to meet with a librarian. Can I set up a time um, to meet with you? And we can do a Zoom. So and I will also way. add for people who aren't even at institutions that have, you know, deep and rich library services, the National Library of Medicine is there mm -hmm. for you as well. They're not going to be able to necessarily have the capacity to provide as much of the in-depth searching support. And it would really be for some of the searching questions in particular or questions related to PubMed, MyNCBI, SciNCV you can absolutely reach out to them. And they also have a lot of just-in-time videos and trainings available on their websites as well. That is super awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been so informative. Is there any closing piece of information that we haven't talked about they really feel it's important to share? Would just say don't be a stranger you know we're so friendly <laughs> we <laughs> love helping people right yeah, yeah. and you know I, I will say that if we if you are not from duke we will try to point you in the right direction or connect you to somebody at your institution it is you know the case that our particular library services are for our duke faculty staff and students but there's likely something at your own institution, or there are sets of freely available resources that we can also point you to. We frequently get people asking for systematic review services, for example, and so we'll say, I know the librarian at X, Y, or Z institution, and I can direct you there, or I'll find out if there's somebody there who can help you with that. I'm also thinking like area health education centers, which will also provide 
library support, depending on which state and region you're in is another one. That's awesome. I Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And it sounds like if if people are not able to connect with you directly, if they're not from Duke or don't have a Duke collaborator, you're often able to show them other resources that they may have access to that perhaps they don't know. We love talking to librarians at other institutions. <laughs> so it's like totally an excuse for us to make a new friend. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. That has been so wonderful. You gave me a lot of information that I feel like I need to go follow up on. You will be getting emails from me shortly, I'm sure. <laughs> but I just want to say thank you so much for the wisdom that you've shared with our listeners. All right, everyone, you've heard Sarah, you've heard Layla. Librarians are your friends. They are not just librarians. They are so much more. They are informaticists. Is that? No, no, no. What you, informationist? Yeah. Did you informationist. You got it. I like yours. Your sounded fancy. <laughs> <laughs> but really, that you're, you're helping us manage information. You're helping us disseminate inter- information and even helping us store it as well. Doing so many things, helping us invest, helping us get promoted, just so, so many, so many things that, that you're doing. And I just want to thank you for your work. I want to thank you for the work you do here at Duke, for the work that I've benefited from, because I've worked with both of you personally, and it's always such an amazing and wonderful experience. So when you started out talking about how the biggest gift you feel and the biggest value you bring the people, I agree. I think it's just, it's such a wonderful experience to work with you, not just getting the information, but just also having a pleasant experience collaborating with you and working with you. So thank you both for, for, for all that you do. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I want to say to our view, to our listeners, if there's anybody who needs to hear this information, who maybe doesn't know, perhaps, you know, all of this and you have a mentee who needs to know, or a colleague who might need to know, please share this episode with them and, and definitely help them get plugged into services that will really enhance their research as well. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. Layla and Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clinician Researcher Podcast where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. If you found the information in this episode to be helpful, don't keep it all to yourself. Someone else needs to hear it. So take a minute right now and share it. As you share this episode, you become part of our mission to help launch a new generation of clinician researchers who make transformative discoveries change the way we do.